0: You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Here's your host, Mike Seeley.
1: Welcome to another episode of Diversity Matters. During October, we celebrate UK Black History Month, and I want to highlight a few individuals who are positively raising the profile of the black community in the UK through their hard work, creativity, talent, determination, and fight for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. This week's episode covers a tragic event that marks a significant point in UK black history. My special guest today is Lee Lawrence. On the 28th of September, 1985, 11-year-old Lee witnessed his mother Dorothy Cherry Gross, unlawfully shot by an overzealous, ill-informed police officer in the early hours of the morning during a botched raid on their family home, sparking the 1985 Brixton uprising, and leaving Cherry with life-changing, physical injuries and disabilities, which eventually led to her death in 2011. The bullet effectively robbed Lee of his childhood, his hopes and dreams that changed his life forever. Ironically, Lee was seven when he decided he wanted to be a police officer. He adored watching cop shows like Starsky and Hutch and The Professionals. After his mother's passing, Lee dedicated his time to pursuing justice. In 2014, an inquest began into his mother's death. Although his application for legal aid was denied, Lee obtained over 133,000 signatures from the public, which supported the decision being overturned which led to legal aid being granted. Lee campaigned to obtain justice, successfully receiving a full public apology and accountability by the Metropolitan Police. From humble origins, Lee's story of early tragedy to the public triumph is one that can inspire any audience. Lee, with his optimistic outlook, now leads cultural and societal change through working with some of the largest businesses and institutions across the world. He has written a book about the impact that day had on his family, entitled The Louder I Will Sing, a powerful, compelling and uplifting memoir about growing up in a modern Britain as a young black man. It's a story both of people and politics, of the underlying racism beneath many of our most important institutions, but also the positive power that hope, faith and love can bring in response. Lee sits on the police advisory boards in Brixton and is founder of Mobility Taxis, a social enterprise providing wheelchair-accessible transport. He is also chair of the Cherry Gross Foundation, a charity in his mother's memory. A memorial was unveiled for Dorothy Cherry Gross at Windrush Square, Brixton in London, on the 25th of April, 2021. Lee, a warm welcome to the Diversity Matters Show. Pleasure to be here, Mike. Well, listen, there's a lot for us to talk about, but I really would like to start with going all the way back to the 28th of September, 1985. Mm. You were 11 years old. Can you tell me what happened on that morning? So, as you said, said,
0: I was 11 11 years old. old. It was my second week into secondary school. And I remember the night before, we were all up late in my mum's room watching TV, and we fell asleep in my mum's room. And, um, it was no different no to any other Friday night. We would have been staying up late watching Friday night TV and looking forward to the weekend ahead. So anyway, 7 a.m. Saturday, the 28th of September, I remember being woken up by a noise. wasn't sure what it was, but I just saw... I woke up and I saw my mum walking towards the doors. So I was still a little bit half asleep. And I laid down just... Feeling rest assured that whatever it was, Mum's taking care of it. And then I just heard this loud bang. And I jumped up this time and I just saw my Mum lying on the floor and a man standing over her with a gun in his hand, shouting, now Where's Michael Gross? Where's Michael Gross? And I just heard my Mum respond in a really faint voice. She said, I can't breathe. I can't feel my legs and I think I'm going to die. And hearing that just freaked me out. Mm. I started jumping up and down on the bed hysterically, like, what have you done to my mum? What have you done to my mum? I was, like, filled with this uncontrollable rage, like I wanted to defend her. And at this point, I was eye-shocked with the person. And the man just pointed his gun towards me and said, someone better shut this fucking kid up. Wow. It was like... He was annoyed by the sound of my voice. The fact that the policeman shot your mum, he
1: actually pointed the gun at you, an 11-year-old kid, which is yeah. just unbelievable,
0: right? What happened directly after that then? Well, bear in, bear mind, in mind, mind that I wasn't was even he aware, that aware that he was a police, police officer police police at first. Okay. And it was only at that point that I froze and I looked at this person and realised, this is a police officer, which confused me because... I saw them as the good guys. guys. I was influenced by all the old cop programs from back in the day, Starskin, Harch, and Lacey. One of my favorites was the professionals. And I'd be in my house role-playing all the time. And if you'd asked me before that incident what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a police officer. So I was really shocked that A, this was a police officer that did this to my mum, and that B, he then responded to me in that way with no level of empathy or anything so my dad was in the room and he was trying to get me to calm down and as he was doing it I saw the fear on my dad's face right and I thought if my dad's scared this is serious because my dad used to be in the army he was a security guard at the time so you know I looked up to him as well and I'm seeing like this kind of real fear on his face in this moment then the reality starts to sink in with me and I became fearful So we got rushed out of the bedroom and into the living room, where I was joined with the rest of my siblings that was in the house. So my sister, Juliet, was 21 and six months pregnant. My sister, Sharon, was 13 at the time. My sister, Lisa, was eight. And my mum was babysitting two children, a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. And, you know, we were just all in the living room, just shocked. And when I looked around me, it was just chaos. There was about 30 officers in the house. There was guns. There was dogs. It just felt like someone had picked up my house and just shook it. In that moment, all we could think about is, you know, is my mum going to be all right? Because the last time I looked at her, she was wounded. Mm -hmm. Moments after, she got taken to the hospital, accompanied by my father, and we were just left in the house with the police. The police that shot
1: your mum, to mind all of the siblings the children in the house, and That's you know, right. one of the interesting things you'd you mentioned, obviously, they burst into the house with a gun, looking for Michael Gross, who's your older brother, yes. who I understand didn't even live at the house.
0: That's right. I wasn't there at the time either. Yeah.
1: So it was a house that had lots of kids at the time. And he not only shot your mum, but then pointed the gun at you. You know, looking back and immediately looking back, I'm not talking about now, but, you know, in the aftermath of everything. How did you feel once you got that opportunity to calm down and start to think about what just happened and it truly dawned on you? How how were you feeling? Were you traumatised by what happened? You know, where was your your head at that particular time?
0: I wouldn't even have been able to label how I felt Mm -hmm. back then. You know, so in retrospect, looking back, I was in shock, disbelief, confusion. We were just in a little bubble. It was something had happened and we're trying to catch up to it. That's the only way I could describe it. You know, there was this sort of delayed, even though there was the initial response, which I just think, you know, that fight or flight response that you get. So when my initial response was to, you know, as I said, protect my mum, I was raged at the fact that someone had harmed her in that way. But that was just like an automatic response that I yeah. didn't really think about. And when it all started to slow down a bit, I was then dazed. I was in this daze, like, am I asleep still? I'm like, is this a nightmare? I was going through that yeah. process. And they'd wow. worry, you know, is my mum going to be all right? Is she going to live? I just couldn't get her, f- her face out of my mind and how worried she looked when yeah. that happened as well.
1: How long after... You know, your mum was rushed to hospital. When was the next time you actually saw her?
0: I saw her days after. So if I was to kind of talk about what happened next. After my mum was taken to the hospital, we were left in the house and we was only getting updates over the over the news, over mm. the radio and TV because wow. the police that was in the house weren't telling us anything. And then there was an announcement that my mum had passed away on the news and on the news. Right? Oh, and I went into the kitchen, grabbed the knife and tried to slip my wrist. And oh, it was a female police officer who grabbed the knife from me. And then what happened after that, the word just started to spread in our tight knit community, which we lived in in Brixton oh, and people were coming to the house, asking questions, weren't getting any answers. So they marched from my house in Normandy Road to Brixton Police Station. And if you can imagine those days, we didn't have no social media, no mobile phones. Most people didn't even have a house telephone, but it spread. And as they were walking towards the police station, it was getting gathering more and more momentum. And by the time they got outside the station, probably there was a few hundred people outside the station demanding to know why this woman was shot in her house in front of her children. No answers, that turned into frustration, frustration turned into anger, anger turned into violence and that was the catalyst for the second uprising in Brixton known as riots but we call it an uprising. Luckily the rumours that my mum had passed were rumours which was crazy that that would be allowed to be announced Yeah, you know, on, on TV. But um, I remember going to see a two days later, after she was shot in St. Thomas' Hospital. I remember going into that, the big building, into the lift, down the corridor, into the ward and the room that she was in, private room. And she had this box over her legs. And I was thinking, well, has she got that there? Anyway, the doctor comes in and explains that mum was shot in her shoulder, which I later found out that when the gun was pointed at her chest, she turned. And that's why the bullet went in her shoulder. and punctured her lung, hit her spine, and came out through her hip. Fragments of the bullet was lodged in her spine, and they couldn't remove it for fear of further damage. And as a result of all of that, she was now permanently paralyzed from the waist down. You know, and I just remember hearing that news was just like devastating to think. The last time I saw my mum walk was towards the door. Yeah. And now she's never going to walk again. And I just remember making a commitment to my 11-year-old self, like, that I'm no longer going to, I no longer can rely on my mum to look after me. I'm going to have to look after my mum. And I spent the next 26 years as a carer to my mum.
1: Wow, that's a lot to take in at that particular age. But I'm just going to come back a little bit because, you know, the, Two things that really struck me. The first one was the fact that all the news that you were hearing about your mum was through the media. And of course, the media themselves provided incorrect information, like saying that your mum had passed. And I can imagine then that the uprising was from people hearing that also. That's right. um, And not getting the answers that they were looking for. Do you think that the media? and the uprising of which the media presented it as riots and looting and you know i i remember this quite clearly you know when it when it all happened you know watching it on the news do you think that really took away from what truly happened with your mum because it almost felt like well they weren't really talking about what had happened with your mum and the fact that it was a raid that had gone wrong it was all about these riots that are going on in Brixton, you know. So, do, do you feel that it really kind of just took away everything, and they started to forget about truly what had actually happened? How, how did that make you you feel?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what happened, and um, there was a lot of emphasis on my brother, who we was what he may or may not have been up to. There was a lot of emphasis on the officer and sympathy for the officer oh he's off on compassionate leave and you know he's having to have therapy and he's got a child on the way and his wife's really distressed and you know there was a lot of empathy for the officer I even looked I was looking back at some of the newspaper clippings recently and I even saw that officers were threatening to go on strike if, if, if he was um, suspended wow and then, and then when you look at the newspaper clippings, there would be big pictures of the officers who got injured and big pictures of the officer who shot my mum and his wife and his, you know, family. And really tiny picture of my mum and a tiny yeah. little bit of writing about who she was or what happened to her. So that all got lost. And then subsequently, when people rose up after what happened to my mum, they were depicted as hooligans. You know, rioters, looters, people would have just looked at them as animals, really, when you've looked at them through the eyes of the media. And really, they were the heroes, the people who took to the streets and decided that enough's enough. I see them as the heroes of our community. And that's why it was important for me when I got the opportunity to acknowledge the the people who rose up in response to what happened to my mum then, you know, I I grabbed that opportunity with both arms.
1: You know, I think most people do forget when you look at, hey, why do we have and why did we have so many uprisings in the 80s in in particular? It's probably through those actions that we have started to see some changes, particularly in the behaviour of the police. Now, I'm not saying that that is by any way, shape, or means, resolve. now. We've not got a perfect solution. But, you know, at the time when we had the Sus laws and there was multiple arrests going on, particularly, you know, in the black communities, not just in Brixton, but in, you know, a lot of the black areas around uh, London and the UK, they were quite horrific times, you know. It was almost gave the police free license to do what they wanted on the streets. You know, so yes, I, I would agree that people that came in support of what happened to your mum, um, that may have been the only way to truly make a, a statement for people, not just the police, but maybe, you know, the government, to really sit up and take notice and realise that something needs to be fixed. Just going past that, if I now come on to The subsequent years, you know, you just, you mentioned that it was just your second week of secondary school. So when you started to go back to school, did you feel different? You know, how, how did you feel going through your school years now, knowing that right at home, you know, your mum had been shot by the police and you're one of her carers now, but yet you're still a young boy who needs to have an education. So, so what was life like? for you at that point
0: well i was sent back to school two weeks after my mum was shot wow Just just two weeks no no therapy no nothing just kind of like business as usual
1: one sec sorry so no counseling nobody really kind of pulling you to one side and asking how are you how do you feel none of that
0: no intervention whatsoever that's incredible And I remember that first day going back to school, it was quite daunting. And I was thinking, how are people viewing me as somebody who has just gone through that? In a weird way as well, there was a little bit of people blaming me and blaming my family for the fact that there was this uprising and, you know, it caused so much disruption. And some of the teachers would make me feel uncomfortable as well. So some teachers either took a really hands-off approach. So they just ignored you and there was very little contact. And then others would be very harsh with you. And you'd, you'd wonder like, why are you being so hard on me? I haven't done nothing to you. But then after a while, I thought maybe people didn't really know because no one ever asked me anything. And I remember going back to see my teacher, my form tutor, many, many years. It wasn't even that long ago, probably about, Four years ago, I got the opportunity to oh, wow. to, to meet my um, form tutor. He was still at the school, even though the school's named something else now. Yeah. And he was talking and I just said to him, like, it was weird that no, no teacher ever asked me what happened or how do you feel or mentioned anything about it. And he said, Lee, it's sad, but back then there were teachers who had never met you, but said... I don't want that boy in my class when it comes to school because he's going to be a problem. They didn't want to
1: have any responsibility to teach you in their classrooms, basically. They'd already no. got a label on you that you were a troublemaker.
0: Yeah, and if you could go as far as identifying that I'm going to be troubled by the fact that I've been traumaed, you would think then, why wouldn't you then? Why wouldn't that be a reason to support me? Yes, of course. Right, rather right. than shun, shun me. me. But that was, that was how they dealt with yeah, it, and yeah. that's how I felt. And the more they dealt with me in that way, is the more I was seeking attention. Right. Yeah, the more I'd get up to mischief, the more I would push boundaries because yeah. I feel like I'm hurting, but nobody is seeing that, and mm. nobody's caring nobody's caring yeah
1: tell me what was the pivotal moment then when you started to seek justice for your mum you know when when did you decide that actually what's happened there's been no real conclusion there's been no real justice behind it you had to go out now and fight for that justice what where was the point when you decided that that's what you were going to do? And and
0: not just you, yeah, obviously your family. So just to put things into context, two years after my mum was shot, there was a criminal trial. The officer who shot my mum, Douglas Lovelock, was acquitted. So there was no justice. Nobody was held accountable for what happened. And that was that. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. And I remember the day that came over the news And I went into the kitchen where my mum was. And I was like, mum, have you heard? Like, he's got off. And I was so angry and I was so hurt about it. And my mum just looked at me in a way like, she's not surprised. She wasn't shocked. She just said, Lee, the police are a force and we can't be the force. And there was this acceptance that these things just happened to us, Mm -hmm. which I was confused about. I mean, I later on got to understand that my mum dealt with it like that because she had to live, she had to get on, she had to try and raise her children still. So she had to try and suppress that in some some way to survive what happened to her. Mm. But I just remember that never sitting well with me. And maybe like in my teens, growing up, you know, my early 20s, I said, this this man who shot my mum was almost like the boogeyman for me and always... (laughs) Remember having these thoughts in my head of revenging what happened to my mum, someone, right? And then she passes in 2011 on Easter Sunday with her children at her bedside and her grandchildren. And I remember that day, all the hurt and the pain and the trauma and the sense of injustice just came flooding back in. And I didn't know where that was going to go. And I thought maybe that I was going to, that revenge that I always dreamt about maybe now's the time, right? And it was when there was this kind of flicker of hope in the fact that there was going to be an inquest into her death and that the doctor who announced her death connected her death to the original incident. And I was like, wow, okay. interesting." So this could be the opportunity to really revisit what happened, understand what happened, and for maybe it to be recognised for what it was. Right. And it was at that point that I decided to just pour all of that energy into that process, um, supported by the rest of my family. Yeah, And that's where the journey began, through that inquest.
1: What was that first step, though? Who, who did you go to see to, to really get that off the ground? You know, you decided that, right, enough is enough. The doctor, was it an autopsy that he did on your mum? that then connected the fact that, you know, she had maybe the shrapnel or, you know, the, the injury connected it
0: to the shooting. That's right. Which was yeah. very unusual that, you know, someone's, someone would pass in like, uh, like 26 years, years after before. the incident. And then they're linking it back. You know, it's a yeah. very unusual situation. But, uh, so but yeah, it was through the doctor then writing in his notes that that's what he believed. And then that triggered off a um, post mortem, and through that, they were able to connect it. Once they examined my mum properly, they were able to connect you know her death to the incident, and then that kicks off a the inquest process, which was a challenge within itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I understand that um, you, you couldn't get the funding to do it because is it because the policeman was had already been um acquitted so they didn't want to provide any funding to be able to help you through this particular process so you you went out and threw a petition i think it's i think i mentioned this right A people signed a petition yeah just talk a little bit about about that
0: Um, And I'm really thankful to all those people for supporting us. Um, I was overwhelmed by that, to be honest. I think I was trying to get 10,000 at the time. Oh, wow. (laughs) And and we ended up getting, you know, 100,000. We were going to the preliminary hearings of the inquest and we kept getting denied legal aid. At that time, there was a problem with people getting legal aid for inquest, period. And then there was a wider problem around the cuts, for um, legal aid. I remember the last time we went to to the preliminary hearing and the judge, a female judge, says, Mr Lawrence, this is the last time I'm going to adjourn this because I kept asking for it to be adjourned because we didn't have representation. And she says, the next time that you um, appear in front of me with or without representation, this inquest is going to go ahead. So that was, uh, my back was against the wall
1: um, you so know. Wait one sec, so the first couple of times you were there with no legal representation, but yet Not you were legal. asking for
0: adjournments. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and right. trying to ask for evidence as well at the same time. Right, right, okay. Um, which they kept refusing me, but when I left that day, actually before I left, I looked at her and I said, well, the next time you see me, by hook or by crook, I will have representation. And I left, it was like a statement of intent, but I didn't know how. (laughs) So (laughs) when I got out of the courtroom, I just said, that's it, we've got to go public. That's it. I said to my family, you know, we're not going to be silent with this anymore. We're just going to have to go public and Mm -hmm. let everyone know what's happening to us. Because one of the things that they kept denying the legal aid on, one of the reasons was they said, it's not in the public interest, right? So I said, well, we've got to make it <laughs> a public yeah. interest then. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we started this petition online and really started at grassroots level. It was, you know, out on the streets, on Facebook, through WhatsApp and, you know, sending it through all your contacts. And I remember we, we put 10,000 on the change.org um, website. And I remember we got about 2,000. I had a meeting with my family and they were saying, Lee, why did you put 10,000 when they were going to get 10,000? You know, why didn't you put five? And I said, listen, don't worry. We're going to, we're going to do this. And again, didn't know how, but I just had to try and reassure my family somehow. Mm. And I remember there was a reporter who tried to reach out to me a year before to ask me to do an interview. I think it was when Margaret Thatcher passed away. And I said, no, I wasn't, interested in doing the interview at the time and I thought I'm going to call him and I called him his name Simon Israel and I said to him you know that interview you asked me for before um, are you still interested in doing it um, and if you are I need something in return too so he agreed to meet me and I said I'll give you this exclusive interview but I need support in my campaign for legal aid so it's a two-way exchange. And he agreed on that. And we did the interview on, say, it aired on the Friday night. And I woke up the next day and I think we must have had about 4,000 signatures. And that day I was taking my son, me and him and my son's uh, mum, to look at a university. It was half the that he mm-hmm. ended up attending. And we were walking around and I kept checking my phone. And then it went up to 20,000. Then it went up to 30,000. Then it was like 40,000 and then 50,000 and then 60 and then 70 and then 70. I think by the end of that one day, it had gone up to like 75,000. And then the weekend, by the Monday, we'd got over 100,000. I was just like so overwhelmed and so appreciative that people were compelled to want to support our campaign because it was a big deal for us you can't take it for granted that it will be a big thing for anyone else yeah. in a sense so that really gave us some strength as well to, to know that there, there's people behind us who are backing us in this courts. and from there it was just just so built you've momentum got back,
1: you got back to
0: the, the court with your legal representation that's right we handed the, the petition into 10 Downing Street And then I don't even think it was a week later that they, the Chancellor at the time, it was Chris Grayling, overturned the decision and we got access to to legal aid.
1: So that allowed you to to then kind of move forward. Yes. And of course this led finally to you receiving not only a public apology, but also to a point where they had admitted that that was completely wrong in terms of the fact that they didn't have enough information on that particular day to burst into uh, your house you know they didn't know where your brother was they didn't know who was in the house at the time they had no plans of the perimeter anything like that that normally that level of intelligence before they would even make any kind of raid you know an armed raid this was that they would have a lot more information so they realized that actually this whole thing was a botched job, probably based on the single thing of just trying to find your brother. And they would kick down any door where they believed he might be. And unfortunately, this was the wrong door, and it led to these tragic consequences uh, going forward. You know, when you received that apology, did that give you closure? How How did you feel?
0: First I'd like to clear up something and say there wasn't a discovery on the day by the Met mm-hmm. to say, Oh, you know, we we've realised all of a sudden that we, they already, we messed already knew. Up. <laughs> they already already knew because there yeah. was an internal <laughs> investigation done soon after by West Yorkshire Police. At that time we didn't have the IOPC independent body. It was you'd have another police establishment come in and investigate themselves. But this person, Chief Detective Demel, his name was, was thorough in his investigation, and he was quite honest with the results that he found. So he highlighted the failures back then. But that document was just shelved <laughs> and wasn't acted upon, and we was never exposed to, to that. So all the evidence that we had really was that document. Mm-hmm. Which, which highlighted all the failures. So the jury came back and agreed with those failures and there was multiple serious failures by the met So then they apologised, um, engaging with those failures. And when they apologised to us, it was a really difficult one because we deserved to get an apology, mm-hmm. but the person who most deserved to get that apology was my mum, who yeah. sadly was no longer here. So I looked at the commissioner and I said to him, When he came and gave that apology in person, it means nothing to us if it doesn't come with accountability. So he said, "Okay, I can't agree that right now, but I'll go away and consider it. And then they came back, like the the solicitor wrote, my solicitor saying, we're not going to accept accountability. The officers on the day owe no duty of care to the children who were traumatised in the house at the time. So as far as they're concerned, it was a casualty of war, (laughs) unfortunately. And I thought, wow, really? So we went into battle again for for another two years until we ended up in the high court. And it was only in the high court that they conceded and accepted accountability because the evidence was overwhelming, and the judge was looking at them like, "Come on, guys, are you are you for real?"
1: Well, they're getting and, to a point of embarrassment, right? Right.
0: And then, and then that led to us going into mediation and then having this kind of restorative justice outcome.
1: First of all, thank you for sharing those experiences. and I've taken you all the way back to, you know, those tragic circumstances. Now you've written a book, The Louder I Will Sing, which really gives an account of, I guess, having read the book, just prior to the shooting, you speak a little bit about your mum and what she was like all the way through the uprising, you know, the appeal, everything. What made you decide
0: to write that book? Well, I felt like, first and foremost, we'd earned earned the right right. to write the book. You know, they Mm -hmm. say history is told by the victors. And so, therefore, we ended up getting some level of victory. And I felt like now it's important to tell the truth, told a real story. Mm. And I was annoyed about the way they depicted us, the story. You know, if I said yeah. to most people, do you remember the Brixton riots? They would say, yeah. And I said, do you know why it happened? Hmm, I'm not too sure. Yeah. So that became bigger than <laughs> the actual incident, if you understand what I'm yes. saying, when my mum yeah. was shocked. So there was a real burning desire to make sure that my mum was number one, just not recognised as this woman who was shot, but that people got to understand who she was as a person and why she meant so much to us and to tell our story, to finally have our voices heard rather than us being reported on and other people giving their own narratives. It was now time for us to say, no, this is, this is the truth, and this is what really happened, mm. and this is the impact of that, so that people hear it from a human perspective, which I felt was missing.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm glad you wrote the book, because I think people, I could always tell people, yeah, I remember the, the Brixton riots, and I can remember why it started, but I didn't get any other details, nobody did, around that. All we then got was, the riots and the way the black youth were portrayed in the media you know and you're right when you look at back at history because for me this is a historical moment that initially told the wrong way right so That's your correct. book has corrected history now i'm hoping that more people will truly understand that piece of history you know why it happened because when we look back at things that have taken place, you know, people may remember, for example, the uprising in Tottenham, right? As what, a week or so after your mum? hmm But again, people won't know the real reasons why. You know, so your book, um, and it's a fantastic book. I love the way you've narrated the book and told the story. And I hope that, you know, more people will buy the book and, and read it because it, for me, it's reading history. It's understanding, you know, real black history in the UK, you know. So well done for, for doing that. Any plans to write another one?
0: I had a meeting with my publishers last week. And okay. so we are discussing uh, a second book, which hopefully I'll be able to announce Excellent. <laughs> yeah. so yeah, yeah. Um, so i'm looking forward to that
1: that makes you a real author then right you know, yeah book.
0: yeah
1: this <laughs> <laughs> uh, a one-trick pony <laughs> yeah. no well done for that but listen um you know not only that but you've gone on to to do you know a number of things you've obviously created the foundation um in your mum's name your mum was in a wheelchair for 25 26 years you've you know, founded a wheelchair accessible taxi company. You speak to the police, you do so many things. Where do you get the time to do all of these things? Uh one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know first of all, before you talk any about that, tell me a little bit about the foundation. What does the foundation uh do?
0: When we, when set, we set the, the foundation, you were still going for the case. <laughs> oh, right. And so we hadn't even come to the end of the case yet. So in between that, I was just, there was just this burning desire to have something my mum's legacy live on some in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to set up this, this foundation and I thought, okay, Lee, what are you going to do? What, what is it going to, you know, it can't just be... Just to have your mum's name live on, you know, it's got a, it's got a function. What's the functionality of this organization? And at that time, I thought what we really know about is caring, right? I spent you know twenty six years caring for my mum, you know, with my siblings, and we know the challenges of having to care for someone who has a disability. Yeah. So we first started to look at how do we support people in similar in a similar position that you know we found ourselves in and especially people who find themselves in situations like that through trauma you know one day you know everything's normal then in a in a moment life changes yeah you know how do you support people that just have to deal with that and pick up the pieces so we started to look at how we bring those people together, how we can support them how we can we, we, we was taking them out on trips and showing them that life doesn't have to end there. There's so much stuff out there mm-hmm. that's accessible and joining those dots so that the people who have accessible facilities, that the people that are unaware of it know about it and now you know that these things are possible. So we saw mm-hmm. ourselves as like that first step to realising what can be done mm-hmm. in that position. And we was doing that for a little while. And then when we got to the end of the case, we felt like, okay, there was so much there so much experience to, to draw from. How do we now harness that yeah. and hand that back down to the next generation so that they don't feel like they're starting from ground zero? There's things that have happened. Some progress has been made. You know, this is a part of your history. Know about it. Take strength from it. Be inspired by it. And take the baton because the, the journey continues, yeah. right? So then we then thought about this education programme, which we've just, um, you know, in the last year, we've been delivering called the, called the Loud Hour Sing. And essentially, mm-hmm. it's to, as I say, to empower young people to use their voice in a constructive way. We teach about restorative justice, how that works, alternative conflict resolution. And that's been going really well so far. The Last few times we've been working with primary schools, and you'd be amazed <laughs> how primary school children absorb all this information. I, I was thinking this might be too much for them you know, to comprehend, you know, it's a lot, but they get it. And I, I do believe we should be trying to reach young people at that age when they're sponges and they could just absorb. Yeah. And then take these things on board. So really proud of that. And then we have the memorial that's been erected in Winrush Square. So yeah. after we deliver the program, they come to the memorial and see the physical memorial. Oh, talk wow. about that. And and that is you know as I said for as well as it being in memory of my mum. So that what happened to her is never forgotten, and that people understand that it's a it's a key part of Brixton history. That also it's a dedication to the, to the people who rose up for that injustice. So it's for the yeah. community too. And so that they know that their efforts was not in vain. Yeah, that's right? amazing. We, What we were fighting for was, was right. And this is the evidence and validate that. Yeah,
1: that, that's, that's incredible. I think that, you know, we celebrate UK Black History Month, you know, every October, but we don't hear these types of stories. And I agree with you in terms of the fact that we really do need to make sure the younger children, you know, particularly, you know, well, all children, not just black children, all children should should learn and understand more about black history um, in the UK. I often believe that if they hear more about how our parents came to this country, helped to rebuild the country you know that was going through a poor economic situation after the second world war and the work that our parents did to bring the country back off of its knees and all the great things that you know people have done over the years i just think it starts to inspire young people to go off and create something do great things start their own businesses all all types of things like that and i think without that type of curriculum, you know, in the school, it feels to me there is something missing for some of those uh, children. And it's ends up some of them going down the wrong, you know, the wrong path in in life. So I do think that, you know, your, your story and and everything that's happened, and particularly the memory of your, your mum is significant UK black history, you know, and it needs to be told. And as I said, I'm so pleased that you've you've written a book um, and I hope people do buy it and read it and understand more about what happened and then the life that, not only that you went through, but the life your mum had, you know, being in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, actually. And that was a short life at that, you know. So, you know, I just want to say, you know, Lee, you are doing absolutely tremendous work coming off the back of such a tragic experience. And I'd even look back and I think, you know, you could have gone completely down a different route, you know, Mm -hmm. you speak about the fact that you really wanted to have revenge for a long time and, you know, what would have happened if you had gone down that route and got your revenge, you know, so you've not only helped to, I guess, change your own life and your own direction and that of your family, but I think you've, with the work that you're doing, you're changing the lives of a lot of people. So I think that's absolutely amazing. Thank you. We've pretty much come to the end of the show. But just before we go, as one question I didn't get to ask you, um, and I'll ask you now. Just tell me a little bit about what your mum was like.
0: So I often often describe my mum as being this little lioness that character was always Mm -hmm. looking out for her cubs. You know, mom was very protective of her children, not mess with her children. Right. So So, in Jamaica, Jamaicans would say little, but tallow. Right. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) my mom was little and petite, but you, you, you rubber up the wrong way and she would tell you about yourself. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But she was, she was loving and caring and, we grew up poor and I would say, you know, below the poverty line, you know, that's how we were living. You know, I remember days when you're so hungry that you you just cry, cry yourself to sleep because that's how hungry you are. But when she had, she would just share every little thing that she had, everyone gets a piece of it. Yeah. And she would give everyone else and leave herself to the last, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes people... We had fallen the hard times and she would say, I'll oh, come stay with us for a little bit. And that could be days, weeks, months. Someone's living with us in our house. That we ain't, we are, and I'm picking mum, we ain't got ugly <laughs> people. We're struggling and you're still taking in more people. Yeah. But that's just how she was. And um, where we I really respected my mum, like, it was after that happened. So if you can imagine, this is a woman who's struggling. You know, there's six of us. Every mm. day is a struggle. she got to find food to eat in. And then you get shot on top of that. And then you've got to try and cope. And I'd see her every day, get up, get in her wheelchair. She would Hoover. she would cook, oh. you know, she would discipline. And she tried to do as much as she could in the yeah. position that she was in. So for me, growing up, I used to think, who am I to complain mm. When I'm looking at this example every day of this person that no matter what, you're in pain, you can't do any of the things that you used to do before in terms of like enjoying life and going out and walking, you know, the things we take for granted and you're still getting up every day and you're still cracking on. So when people say like, how did you do it, Lee? I always say, you know, I had the best teacher and my mum didn't teach by telling you what to do. She teached by showing you, right? It was by example. And my unconditional love and respect, you know, for my mum is why I fought so hard for her. That's she crazy. she wouldn't have fought this hard for herself because she was selfless in that, you know, she 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 put others first, but I thought it was important to put her first. And, yeah. you
1: know. And you've done, done un- that certainly for- in a very, very big way indeed. Um, you know, a memorial will be there for forever. You know, for people to learn from, people to be inspired from, and give hope to people, all of those things. So, Lee, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your experiences, being very open, honest, and and candid with with your approach. And, you know, I wish you every success with everything you are doing going forward with the, the charity. And of course, looking forward to the next talk too.
0: Okay. (laughs) So I'll keep you updated on that. Brilliant. Well, listen,
1: uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. And and as I said, good luck. Thank you, Mike. Okay. You take care. And you too.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Diversity Matters. We hope that through our discussions, we have brought a deeper understanding of what equity diversity and inclusion truly means for each of us. Remember that the journey to a truly inclusive and equitable world is ongoing. Let's continue to champion these values in our lives and strive for positive change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe the show on your favorite podcast channel. And we look forward to joining us on the next episode. And remember, inclusion, equity and diversity matters.